Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like the show, please rate, review, subscribe, smash that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it. And hey, if you like us, tell one person. That's all we ask. There you have it. Some housekeeping here on the front end. A brand new show on the 440 Sports Network Club and Country covering Nashville SC with Wes Bowling and Tim Sullivan. Really excited about this. Really excited. I know you're a big soccer guy, so make sure you check that out. Uh, Of course, Ryan McGee from ESPN was on Fringe Element, the SEC podcast this week, so make sure you check that out. Uh, Adam Bingen and myself, of course, with the Gold Standard, the National Predators podcast on Wednesdays. Uh, A lot to discuss as as they are now in the playoffs, but still should be selling off pieces. So very complicated conversation with the National Predators, so make sure you check that out. Adam Sparks of the Tennessean is our guest today on Lamestream Sports. We have a whole lot of storytelling to do, and it goes into some places figuratively and literally that we did not expect it to go it took a uh, it took like a hard out, turn there there towards the end no pun intended uh directly into uh <laughs> adam sparks nether regions we'll get to that trust me it's hilarious you're going to want to hear it uh, but he's been on the beat in middle tennessee for almost two decades has a lot of great stories to tell about vanderbilt uh coverage uh, some of the stuff that he's learned how much personal you know, perspective he adds to the to the work, I think is really interesting. Um, so we'll get to that. Also, ratings are back on the show. Ratings They're back. And, ratings and Rex are back. Uh, we apologize. It was actually back last week, and I forgot to mention this, but the Tennessee-Oregon State game, this is for two weeks ago in the ratings book, was actually seventh place of all the NCAA tournament games, Steve. You know, that's an appropriate place for that game. <laughs> Nobody should be watching that game. Syracuse- we did. And you yeah, should not did. watch that game. All, all of them, the top five, of course, were from CBS. So Syracuse, West Virginia was number one at a 7.0. Wisconsin, Baylor, Loyola, Chicago, Illinois, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Virginia Tech, Florida. So it sort of shows you Tennessee came in at a 4.6. So almost twice as many people in Nashville watched Syracuse and West Virginia as they did Oregon State and Tennessee. So we'll get to this past weekend's NCAA tournament rankings uh, as far as the ratings book go a little bit later on in the show. Uh, But before we do any of this, of course, Lamestream Sports is brought to you by Jaspers. That's Jaspers. If you do not speak screaming Steve Cavendish (laughs) off the microphone, but that's Jaspers, which is a great place to go watch the game. Great happy hour, great specials, great food, great parking, great wait staff, great sight lines, the bar's great. Lots of space. Grab and go market over there on West End. So make sure you go to Jasper's. Adam Sparks was our guest. And we talked a lot of stuff, Steve. We talked about Donnie Everett's passing and his coverage of that sport. Apparently, he's covered a lot of death. I don't think I realized that about him. Um, but a lot of Vanderbilt, a lot of time in Nashville. And I thought it was a lot of fun. Vanderbilt's a tough gig. Uh, it's the only non-public school in the SEC. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, there's some advantages to covering public schools and sort of access to records and particularly when coaches change and that sort of thing. But it, it, it's a weird niche because people here in town know Vanderbilt has a place in the sports landscape. It will never be the biggest place in the sports landscape. But the small group that, of Vanderbilt fans that are out there are very vocal about it. And so that can be sort of a that can be sort of a tough audience to manage. Uh, I think Adam's done a really good job. Uh, I think he's a I think he's an excellent beat writer. But trying to cover Vanderbilt and cover the width the the breadth of it from just terrible football teams to uh, to just top of the mountain baseball teams has been uh, has been a really really great ride for him. And and I think he's done a nice job covering it. And obviously, off the heels of some of the biggest news Vanderbilt fans have ever gotten this week with the with the announcement of investment. So lots of different dynamics, lots of stuff at play. We had a lot of fun. Adam is an incredibly introspective guy, incredibly thoughtful guy. Uh, I've always been a big fan of his work, and so really excited for this interview for you guys to hear this. So uh, without any more from us, this was our conversation with the Tennesseans, Adam Sparks. Adam, welcome to the show, man. Great to have you. Good to talk to you. I've been a fan of your work and, and reader of your work for quite some time. And as everyone knows, your time on the Vanderbilt beat is coming to an end. So we had to get you on the show to tell some stories. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. I appreciate it. I'm a subscriber of the pod, so it's good to be good to be on the platform that I subscribe to. Uh, but yeah, this is 
seven seven years on the Vandy beat. It's about to, about to end here in a few months. We're actually looking for my replacement. Um, so I've done 10 years on the MTSU beat and seven on the Vandy beat. And usually once you've done five years on a beat, they say that's a little too much. So I've, I've exceeded my welcome, I suppose, in two beats. <laughs> what can you tell us from, from having spent this time on the Vandy beat it's the only private school, for instance, in the SEC, which creates some issues. Uh, like, for instance, you don't have the ability ability to FOIA anything because they're a private institution. Whereas, whenever there's a whenever there's a coaching search, you know, all your colleagues that are covering Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia or whoever else, they're they're like they're like running for public records, and you you have you have none of that. So, uh, what what are some of the the, the challenges of covering Vanderbilt? Yeah, I mean, it's pluses and minuses. I've always approached any job that I've had of I'll just focus on the pluses, accentuate those and not not care too much about the cons. Yeah, when, when at the on the MTSU beat, obviously, that's a public school. And yeah, I could FOIA anything. Yeah. And you always really had the threat or the leverage to say what well, you might as well tell me because I'm going to find out. And uh, you can't do that at Vandy. Now, on the flip side, the positive of covering Vandy as opposed to a state school is um, that you can have a little more, because it's a smaller enrollment, smaller fan base, smaller media contingent, you can have a little uh, more access, a lot more access. You can have better relationships with people, a little closer. You know, my forte over the years has been human interest. And, uh, and you know, at, at a lot of beats, you don't get to sit down with somebody and talk to them for an hour. And because of Vandy's size, um, you you get to do that. So those are the pros. The yeah, the investigative stuff. Um, the investigative stuff you've got to work a little harder for. That's that's for sure. And you've got to rely on uh, on a lot of different sources that maybe you wouldn't have to use at a state school. Well, and, and additionally, it, it also means because of the size of the fan base and and the interest and the access, it also means that you weren't just a, a football guy. I mean, obviously that's the main topic, the main story, but with Vanderbilt, because they're so good in baseball and because they have all this, a pretty good program in basketball as well. Like you, you were, you know, were you sort of always assigned to every one of them when you, when you were brought on, was that sort of always the deal? And, and how is that different than, you know, like Georgia football where they've got, you know, four guys for the AJC covering one football team. Yeah, I mean, like I'll compare it to our guys in Knoxville. We have two writers and a columnist out there that only cover UT, and uh, one of them is football only. And you know, at Vandy, and also even my time at MTSU, it was cover everything. At Vandy, it was it's such a weird transition because you're covering a team in the fall that could lose every game, and this last season did lose every game. And every game that's won, it's there's a parade for that, you know. Um, and then you transition into baseball. And if you lose a midweek series or you lose a midweek game, it's the end of the world because you're the best team in the country. So I've always found that sort of funny. I, you know, I feel like in baseball season, I'm covering sort of the Alabama of college baseball because, you know, tons of major leaguers and the number one picks and all that are on those teams. And then you'll go cover right now. I'm covering that in baseball. And then the next day I'll cover spring practice in football and, you know, it's a lot of two-star and three-star guys, and that's, that's such an odd thing to do. I don't know if there's that many, that many schools in the country that you can say that about. You've covered several different coaching transitions here within both the football and basketball programs. It, specifically, what do, you, what do you think you know about the institution and kind of how they approach that now and how that's changed over the years with changes in athletic directors and, and changes in kind of like in the institution? Well, I mean, with the announcements this week, and I know we'll get into that, but with the, the new chancellor and Candace Lee as AD, I, I think it's probably the, it looks like it could be the best version of what Vandy can be. And that's just so different than what everybody else is. You know, they've had so many left turns. I mean, Malcolm Turner was the athletic director and he was uh, the commissioner of the NBA G League. And, you know, that came out of nowhere. It's it, it's it's so weird to judge coaches at Vanderbilt because you got to look at them at, at the different uh, programs. Tim Corbin is the best coach in the country um, in college baseball. He's one of the best in the country in any sport. Derek Mason, like every Vanderbilt coach at his best, is a, a six and six coach. 
seven and five coach maybe at his best. And at his worst, he's an 0 and 10 coach this last year. Um, so football, there's just, there's, you're only going to be okay. James Franklin was better than okay, but historically you're only going to be okay at your best in, in, in that. I found the funniest thing is basketball when I've been covering Vandy, because let's look at back at, at Bryce Drew's tenure. If Darius Garland doesn't get injured in the fifth game of the season, Vandy's probably in the sweet 16. I mean, maybe they get put out in the tournament, but who knows, but there, you know, and Bryce Drew is still here and has a fat contract and probably would have gone to the NCAA the next year. That's if Bryce, that's if Darius Garland doesn't get injured. And because he did, Bryce Drew got fired, which I thought probably wasn't a terrible idea because he he did terribly with the situation that he was dealt. But the, the, the sports at Vandy can just be judged and the coaches can be judged just so differently. And I feel for whoever has to follow up Tim Corbin. Basketball, um, I'm, I can't believe that Vandy basketball has been this bad this long because historically it's been pretty competitive. And football, I mean, Clark Lee may go seven and five, and I would believe you. He may go four and eight, and I would believe you. There's just not really – it's all in the middle ground at Vandy and football. I think it historically will be for a long time. How would you describe the, the fan base of, of Vanderbilt Athletics? Like, we've already talked about a very small private school. These kids are not always going to the games when they're in school. They're off curing cancer and fighting civil rights litigation and stuff, like, while they're seniors. Or drinking on their front lawn at the at fraternity row. Where, where, where James Franklin would go try to find them and get them to come to games. Um, right. Like, I guess, is there an old guard, new guard? Is it just, is that sort of the way all SEC fan bases are? How, how would you describe sort of the Vanderbilt sports fan base writ large? No, I mean, it's mostly old, old guard. Uh, I mean, it, after covering Vandy for this long, sometimes I feel for the fans maybe that are younger or even that are older because, uh, you know, I, I, I had good friends growing up that were Vanderbilt fans and, I'd be like, why, you know, why are you a Vandy fan? Because it was mostly predicated on football. And I, so I get frustrated sometimes with Vandy fans that say, when are we going to do this like so-and-so school? When are we going to change this like so-and-so school? And that's facilities and priorities and budgets and all that, all those things. And I just want to say to them, why are you, go back to your grandfather and say, Pappy, why are we fans of this team? Because it's not going to change. It's not going to change. I love Vandy fans. I, I, I like the school. I like a lot what the school stands for. But you have to look at history. And the idea that when is, when is Vandy football going to be competitive with the SEC, like a fill-in-the-blank of the school, it's not. It's just not. Now, maybe somebody comes back and Clark Lee goes to an SEC title in five years, and I'll eat crow, but – I just like to look at history and that's, that's not going to happen. So if you're expecting drastic changes at Vanderbilt, you need to go pick another school. And if you're an alum there, then great stick with your school. But the sidewalk fans confuse me because you can go find another school that wins more. So I almost respect the fact that they stick with it because they don't have to as sidewalk fans. But usually I just answer questions all year from people that keep on asking the same questions of when is this going to change? And my answer is always, why would you think it would? It'll change little tidbits and it did this week, but it's not going to change drastically. It never will. Which brings us, of course, to this week. And can you try to put into perspective what a let's let's call it a $300 million investment in, in football? I know there's other sports that are going to be getting some of that money, but just a philosophical change, maybe finally from the administration, can you, and you've already alluded to the organizational structure, maybe being in a better place than it's ever been before. Can you put into perspective what this meant this week has meant to Vanderbilt fans as far as maybe actually getting some of that change finally? It's just at the top changed. The chancellor's priorities changed. Um, you know, I mean, Vandy always had the money to do this and they've always had the money to do more, but they looked at their priorities and their list of top 10 priorities, you know, athletics was number 10. And with this, the chancellor moved it to up to number six, you know, and that's one way of looking at it. So they could always do this, but it's just not high on their priorities. He just moved money from one spot to another. And that's all he did. And I mean, $300 million is not going to, drastically change things it's just going to close the gap a little bit I mean I, I got questions this week from people about how different is the stadium going to look well it's, it's not I mean if you read the 
the fine print in that, most of it is a team facility, which by the way, every coach and every alum wants that more than the stadium renovations. I'm sorry to fans, but if you want to get a little better in football, it's it's dealing, it's giving resources to the players that are there every single day, not not just Saturdays, seven Saturdays in the fall. So they're going to put money into that. That will close the gap a little bit. Um, inside the stadium, I mean, they said premium seating. That could be some chairbacks here and there. They said a hospitality space. If it's an in-zone team facility, that just means putting like a stadium club level on that. So uh, it's just the priorities have changed. A lot of the athletic directors in the past have said uh, football and athletics needs to be higher up the priority list. The chancellors have always given lip service to that, and then they didn't do it. This chancellor said, yeah, I'll I'll bump it up on the priority list a couple spots, and he did. Vanderbilt media coverage is, I mean, I've been in that press box before on a Saturday. I mean, it's not the most crowded press box. Vanderbilt media coverage is enough, too much, not enough relative to their performance. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's about what it's always been. So I don't even know how to judge it of what it, what it should be. Um, you know, I, I will say there are all different tiers of coverage, uh, at Vandy, just like there is everywhere. It's just that there's, it's, you know, there's one 24 seven guy, there's one rivals guy, you know, there's one Tennessean guy, uh, you know, local beat writer. There's those one guys where a lot of other schools, it's five, five guys or women in those spots. So it's the same as anywhere else. It's just, it's just really, uh, it's just really smaller than, than any other place. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed covering it. It's just, it's so different than, uh, than anywhere else, but the, I mean, they get enough media attention. You know, I, I see a lot of people that uh, get ticked off that, um, you know, on sports talk locally that Vandy doesn't get a lot of talk. They, they do. If you're on the right, if you're on the shows that you want to hear that from, so there's there's areas you can go to, and at the Tennessee, and we've had a podcast for a couple of years that go that does only Vandy stuff. Um, so there's areas you can go to for that. But if you want everybody to talk about Vandy as much as they would talk about everybody else, that's just not where the audience is. And those are, you know, I'm a realist, and the numbers aren't there to do that all the time. It's 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 not a just a coincidence that Vandy gets the most attention in June. That's when the team, that's when the baseball teams in, in the College World Series, and they don't get as much attention in October because that's when the football team's bad. You know, it's, it's just what it is. I'm curious about some of your more memorable moments on the beat because I, I, have, I, have, I have one that stands above everything else when it comes to Vanderbilt baseball. And I've, I've see, sat with you, sat next to you. And, you know, Steve, you talk about being in the football press box. I think I've been in the baseball press box a hundred times more than I've <laughs> been in the football press box. A, it's it's just more fun. It's a better product, and they're always in regionals and super regional games. There's always big moments with future stars in the major leagues too that you get to watch with free parking. And now I'm just ranting about why people aren't more interested in Vanderbilt baseball at this point. But I'm curious the the most memorable moments you've had around Tim Corbin because there's there's absolutely one that comes to mind, and I think you were there that night when of course they got rained out and he had to do a press conference about the passing of one of his players. And he stuck around for, I don't know how long hours to talk to like five people about an incredibly difficult subject. And I sort of have always viewed Tim Corbin differently since that evening. We talking about the, the Donnie Everett death. When, when Donnie passed, I think they were playing Washington maybe that day and it was suspended for rain and it was like a 10.30 p.m. press conference in the bottom of Memorial Gymnasium, and there might have been like five of us there. I just have never seen a man do something like that before. Well, I mean, most of my most memorable moments on the beat would all be under the, under the category of the Donnie Everett death. You know, I mean, covering his funeral, covering the, you know, how that story broke. I, I technically was the first one that reported that story of his death. Um, if I remember it right, I was, you know, I was sitting in my office. I got I got word from a former colleague that's no longer in the business um, that they had a connection a little bit to the family and gave me a heads up. And they said, "Hey, I've I've heard of Andy baseball players died and told me kind of the parameters of it." And I pre-wrote the story, and if I remember right, I waited through the whole night 
waiting for confirmation and I had touch bases with with everybody that could give confirmation, you know, as, as uh, appropriately as I could. And I started to get DMs and texts from other media members in Nashville saying, we've heard what you've heard. When are you going to report it? And, you know, in, in the moment, I didn't really take it this way. I suppose there's a little bit of a respect factor there that other people knew it, but they thought if I hadn't reported it, it may not be true. So that was one. We finally reported it the next day and put it out that Donnie had drowned. You know, his funeral was pretty tough. You sit in there and you're really observing for work, but you you know him. I interviewed him a handful of times and I knew everybody or a lot of people in there. I would say my most memorable moment was on the field of the 2019 national title. Donnie Everett's parents went down and his mother was over to the side, bawling her eyes out and uh, and happy. I asked her, what do these tears mean? And she said, these are tears of joy because I wanted to know because all his teammates had just won the national title. She was happy. I interviewed her as, as appropriately as I could with her permission. And then I turned the recorder off. I leaned over to her and I said, I'm not a reporter for the next 30 seconds. And then I gave her a hug and, and told her a few things in her ear. And, and, I, and I'll keep that between she and I. And, and, then I uh, and then I went over to Donnie's dad. And he was standing about 30 feet away on the pitcher's mound in the celebration. And there's players running every which way. And he was glassy-eyed, stared off into space. He was in shock. And he agreed to ask, answer a couple of questions. And he said, I just wish my son was here. And he was distraught and she was happy to some extent. And that juxtaposed was, was what, will, what, what I remember. And, I, you know, I wrote that story after the fact. And the way that I kind of see my evolution as a writer, and I've been a sports reporter for 21 years now, is how I cover death. So I covered Tina Stewart's death. She was the MTSU women's basketball player that was murdered by a roommate uh, back about 10 years ago. I covered that. And I remember covering it as after the fact and the players said, we're going to dedicate this to her and we're going to move on. And I would spin the story in a, well, it's a happy ending. You know, everybody kind of is like dedicating this season to her and things are looking up. And, and I covered it in that way because I was in my 20s, maybe 30 years old. I'm 41 now. And I've covered a lot of deaths of athletes over the years. When I wrote the story about Donnie's parents on the field, I, I had a line in that story that said something along the lines of, uh, it wasn't a happy ending. It was maybe just the best outcome of the worst situation. And I've been proud over the years that as I've gotten older and I've had different life experiences, that I can see things with layers and especially death with layers. It's not a happy ending. You know, there's a lot of complicated things that go on and you have to reflect that in, in the stories. And I think maturity and experience brings that out to some extent. Um, you know, a year after Donnie's death, I did a story on Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson was one of Donnie's teammates. He was one of the guys that was there when Donnie drowned and he left baseball, could not do it anymore. And I caught up with him a year later. He agreed to do an interview and we sort of talked our way through it. And I remember um, he said, I can't explain how I feel. He was in counseling. He talked about his faith. He talked about he would cry and cry and then he would be okay. And I had a line in that story that tried to sum up what he couldn't explain. And I said, grief can be complicated. And I remember thinking when I wrote that story, um, you know, I, I got divorced in my early 30s. And so I went, a I went through a period of, uh, you know, a number of years of grief. And everybody has some life experience like that, that they kind of call back to that was mine. And I remember, and so I understood in that, that grief is kind of up and down, right? You feel better and then you feel down and you can't really explain to anybody how you're doing. And so I understood grief and loss in a better way, I think, after that. And so there's a line in the Ryan Johnson story where I said grief can be compli complicated. And 99% of that story was about Ryan Johnson. That one line was about me. 
And I love looking back at things that I write like that and, and knowing that I understood something, some type of empathy that I didn't know maybe when I was a younger sports writer. And, and I love seeing that, that how to deal with those things. That I could gauge all the deaths that I've covered over the years and how I wrote those and covered those and dealt with those um, as my evolution as a, as a writer. And I could go on and on of the deaths that I've covered, but th those are usually how I gauge things. And those are mo easily my most memorable moments I think of covering Vandy. Have you checked back in with, with Ryan since then? Um, I'm Facebook friends with him and with his parents. I'll say, you know, hi here and there. Uh, I'm a guy of pretty deep faith. And so I never bring that on Twitter. I kind of have a separation there, but I do on Facebook and his parents, I will post scriptures and thoughts and things like that. And they will, you know, like or share uh, those types of things. And so, you know, and, th and that's another thing is that, so I, I have a pretty deep personal faith and I've found over the years that I've been able to bring that in at times that are appropriate and instantly the guard will come down on some people. Ryan Johnson, I remember talked about, he was a little skittish to talk about how his faith was brought into counseling. And he said, you know, I've got this verse tattooed on my arm or something like that. And I, he said, it's whatever this verse is. And I quoted it back to him. Instantly, he thought, oh, I can confide in this guy a little easier. So you, you learn things over the years that can kind of can kind of help you out with that. Uh, you know, I see things different now as a parent. My kid's 18 years old and I can cover things now as a parent that I couldn't cover in my 20s necessarily in the same way. And you can come across to people really quickly if you can connect to them in that way. Age is a wonderful thing for a journalist and experience is a wonderful <laughs> thing as a, as a journalist. I'll go one more with you. Um, I covered a death uh, a number of years back where I was assigned to somebody that I didn't know. An athlete had died. He was a teenage boy. And I was given the task of reaching out to his father to try to get a comment. And he was, he was a public figure of some sort. And I text the guy and I said, you don't know me, but here's who I am. Here's my credentials. I understand that your son just passed away. And he was like a 12, 13 year old boy or something. I said, as part of my job, I need to ask you if you'll give a comment or confirm his death. But honestly, I wouldn't reply to my text if I were you, because this isn't important. Because I'm a father and you're a father and this isn't important. The guy called me back 30 seconds later and gave me full quotes, told how it happened, all these sort of things. And he said, you know, and he said, you know, thanks for how you put that. And I connected with him as a father. And I think that's why he called me back. And even, even beyond that, what I learned in the call, again, this is about grief, is that I found out within that call that his wife, the mother of the child, and the other kids were in the car while he was talking to me. And all he wanted was a connection to the outside world of somebody that didn't know about, didn't know about his son's death and wasn't feeling that grief. He wanted normalcy and he didn't know me. So he wanted just to talk to me in a human way. So you, you find funny things with that. And, you know, those are pretty heavy things, but you get those in sports journalism. And I think when I got into this field, I didn't know that would be the case. Uh, I was going to ask you how, how you go about confirming something like that, but you just sort of explained that to us. Um... Lamestream Sports is brought to you by I, I really don't. I, I don't think Zoom even heard that, Steve. All right, let's Jas try that again. It's, it was, it's Jaspers. It's, it's brought to you by Jaspers. Jaspers. There you go. Jaspers on <laughs> West End. What are some folks saying about it, Steve? <laughs> you know, some people have called it the next evolution of the sports bar. I, I mean, that's an amazing statement. And all the people are saying it. All the kids. And now... Great happy hour, four to six, which we enjoyed watching the Tennessee-Oregon State game despite watching a terrible basketball game. Uh, and again, of course, occasionally Division One basketball coach might be meandering through the the uh, the crowd at, at Jasper's, which is uh, still socially distanced, of course. But the happy hour is amazing. Fantastic couple of uh, menu items for food, draft beers, cocktails, all, wine, all kinds of great happy hours. That's four to six p.m. every weekday. But also during Preds games, 
And now those Preds games are actually fun to watch. So now you definitely want to go to Jaspers. And instead of drowning your sorrows, you're celebrating seven to one victories over the Blackhawks. I mean, it's quite a it's quite a turn <laughs> here uh, to be able to say, well, I'd actually like to leave the house to go watch a Preds game. I might not have put a Preds game on in my own house had things kept going the way they did the first 25 games of the season. This is all part of Jasper's plan was to get people vaccinated and then the Preds get good at the same time. (laughs) And and now you can all go out to Jasper's and just drink all the gold standard cocktails that you want, which is a whiskey drink, not a cider drink, and and just have a great grand old time out there. You're going to make that joke every single time, aren't you? I've only done Um, it twice. The, the the great thing about Jasper's is if you're going to go out with friends and you're going to you're going to go watch a game, it's great to go where you can get good food. You're going to go out. You're going to have a good time. You might have a drink or two or three to go some to find some place that you can legitimately enjoy eating a meal while you're also doing that is I'm going to say rare <laughs> in the pantheon of sports yes. bars. But when you're the next evolution of the sports bar, mm, true you start to expect the really good food and and like you could order six or seven or eight different items and all, and all of them are great and all of them are shareable all of, you know whether it's happy hour or otherwise the flatbreads are great the sandwiches are great the shareables are my favorite which is also what's on the happy hour menu so again go to jasper's great place to watch the game happy hour for the preds uh, as well as four to six every single day of the week weekdays monday through friday and again the parking lot is for free so you don't All pay. the parking is free. Every last Every spot. spot. Every spot. And none of them are parallel. It's all just regular parking spots. So Unparalleled parking. So don't be scared, okay? It's okay. Go to Jasper's. Have a great time. All right. So let's uh so let's play a little sort of instant reaction here. I'm gonna I'm gonna say a name and I want you to I want you to kind of react to him. Okay. Jerry Stackhouse. Not proven yet as a coach. Derek Mason. Did the best he could with what he had. Uh, it was his time to go. James Franklin. Um, he got the best he could with what he had and got out as fast as he could. Because you keep that guy around two more years, It's not, I don't think it's nine wins. It was ahead of the posse sounds like he was cheating. So I don't want to say that, but he knew exactly when to get out. I think he's one of the top 15 or 20 coaches in college football. And he gave a false pretense of this job. I think to a lot of the people, cause they're like, Hey, well, James Franklin won nine games a couple of years. So I guess anybody can do it. Uh, they, they were fortunate to get James Franklin when they got James Franklin. And there's only about a dozen other coaches in the country that would have got that many wins out of Andy. Bryce Drew. I would want him involved in my life personally more than any coach probably that I've ever covered, but I've covered a whole lot better coaches, certainly in that job. Uh, I often wanted to go up and hug him, and that's not how you want to feel about a coach. Bryce would come to media sometimes and ask, what do you think's wrong? And when a coach is asking a media member that, seriously, uh, you know, he's he's flailing. And, and so it just wasn't going to work out. When he hit the tournament this year, with I think he was coaching Grand Canyon, wasn't he? Yep. How odd was it to see him in the tournament with another team? Make complete sense to me. I mean, when he went there, I thought hey, he'll be in the tournament in two years. Um, I told a number of people that. I mean, if you would have plugged him into Belmont, they'd have been in the tournament, Lipscomb in the tournament, a number of jobs. Private, small school with some type of faith background that's a mid-major you plug him into most of those schools and he'll win to get to an NCAA tournament. He, he thought Vandy, I think was something similar to what he was looking for. And it was actually a little different. I think when he got here and found out, and he also found out what a lot of coaches are finding out. And Jerry Stackhouse is a little bit, and that's SEC coaches are really, really good. I mean, I tend to see uh, some coaches that come around and think, well, I mean, these are college coaches. I mean, you know, they're they're really really good and they're better than most other coaches at most other levels that you're going to find some of the sec coaches are not coaching elsewhere because they don't want to not because they haven't had the opportunities to you better be a class a coach or you're not going to win the sec rick Stockstill, great guy i hate starting like that i don't want to say great guy uh he should have taken the east carolina or memphis job when he did because he won 10 games 
in 2009 was offered a pretty good amount of money. And well, I mean, maybe he shouldn't because he got a lot of money at middle to then average seven wins a year for the next decade. So good, good for him. But it's it was it was probably over for him about three years ago. Kermit Davis. Phenomenal coach, phenomenal motivator. One of the first practices I ever covered for uh, of him. They got a transfer in Steve Thomas. He was a big man that transferred from Georgia. He wasn't doing well in practice. Kermit stopped the practice and he said, Steve Thomas, I want you to turn and apologize to your beat router for not hustling. And he had to give a full-fledged apology in the middle of practice to me who had never met the guy before. Mr. Sparks, I'm so sorry I didn't hustle there. I will do better to impress you in your job as a journalist. And Kermit also brought me into his office one time because I'd written something critical of him. And he said, he, he, he read me the riot act and used a lot of the words that Kermit could tend to use. And I said, well, number one, I'm not one of your players. So I don't know why you're talking to me like one of your players and said a few other things. And from that point forward, we were cool. And if I had a son playing ball, I'd send him to Kermit because he'll get the, he'll get the best out of any player. Along these sort of lines, because I couldn't name the coach. How do you explain the anomaly that is Vanderbilt bowling to someone in the outside world? Uh, There's only a few places that do it. They actually have a bowling facility. How many people have bowling facilities on campus? That's in the indoor facility. They prioritize it a little more. I mean, that's the thing. If you think about Vanderbilt's non-revenue sports, they're phenomenal in all of them. Women's tennis have won a couple of national titles. Men's tennis tennis are in the national title hunt. So is men's golf, sometimes uh, women's golf. I mean, they're really, really good. Soccer is SEC champion. So the fact that bowling is really, really good, well, they're good in everything that's not football and sometimes basketball. So it doesn't shock me. You could put in fencing, which is what uh, David Williams wanted to put in, or rowing or crew or whatever it is. You you plug in any of those sports at Bandy, they'll do really well because they're treated closer to the level of football and basketball than they will be at anywhere else. You know, you mentioned women's soccer. Obviously, Sarah Fuller with a big a big story this fall on the football team. And you mentioned liking sort of what Vanderbilt is. And and I, I've been around a lot of the football players. They are just they're just different than than a lot of other places. I guess the question is on campus, when kids get there, do they know what they're stepping into? That they, they that they know that this is sort of, sort of like a, it's a different place that hey, we're we're probably going to end up viewing things in a different way than than if I did went down some other path? I think some of them that come from private schools, they understand that. I mean, it depends on how you want to go with that question. Vanderbilt, politically, I thought is always a weird place because um, there's a, a very politically liberal element at Vanderbilt. Um, it's a private school, progressive thinking in a lot of ways. But then you have old money that is more conservative. So you've had these two, and then you have a, in the fan base, you have the sidewalk fans that are usually more conservative because they're old school Nashville. And so you've got these two, you know, if, I mean, if you go to Tennessee and who the Tennessee fan base voting for, it's, it's right, that's easy, right? Or Alabama <laughs> or whoever. At Vanderbilt, it's, it's more left-leaning, but there is some hard right-leaning others, and they just grind away at each other in that fan base sometimes. So it, it makes it at least entertaining uh, on Twitter sometimes. And that's why I usually don't tweet about any of those things, that and a n- number of other reasons. <laughs> but uh, I would say the biggest thing that surprises the players when they get there is that they're second-class citizens, for lack of a better phrase. You know, I've been around other programs. And, you know, if you're the star football player at an SEC school, somebody's passing you a notebook to get an autograph or somebody's you're in a bunch of selfies these days, right? You're, you're worshiped on campus at Vanderbilt players have told me over the years that they're just looked down on and it's oh football player. Well, you know how he got here, you know, and that's, that's really weird in the sec. And a lot of kids that are usually who they get are three-star players and three-star players are all state players are on the fringe of that. And so, and they're usually worshiped in their, in their high schools. And then when they get to Vanderbilt, and people are like, you shouldn't be here. It's a, it's a little odd. I think that's the biggest surprise that a lot of players get when they get on campus. Did you know that when you began unveiling all these former alumni's thoughts about the facilities, when that started happening, did you see that wave 
ahead of time? Did it just happen? Uh, sort of walk us through that process where you start to get these alumni publicly coming out about how they need to support football more. I, no, I mean, I, I knew there was a pretty deep cut there over the years, but you don't really realize it till you're on the beat. I mean, when I got on the beat in 2014, uh, we had David Clymer, the great former columnist at the Tennessee in there, and uh, Mike Oregon, the longtime beat writer for Vandy was there. And I remember I brought up in a meeting that said, hey, Vanderbilt just kind of told me the other day they're looking at doing some little thing with facilities and just laughs roll out in the in the newsroom. And like, no, 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 really. They've got this plan to do this. And both of them are like, do you want me to just, you know, copy and paste what we've written 6,000 times? <laughs> and so when you hear that, you're like, no, really, really. And then once you get a few years into it, you realize how deep that cut is and how, how many times people have been let down. Mike Oregon showed me about a month ago a clip that he had like from 1993 that looked like almost the same uh, news release that they put out this week, except for the number. And so when you've covered that that many times, there's a lot of skepticism. So people had a lot of anger built up and it was a little tough because, you know, sourcing, you want to you want to get people in the athletic department or people in fundraising or people that were recently in those positions for sourcing because you want to get it right. But then a lot of times you get fringe people and you'll talk to them for two hours. They'll just be yelling about things that went on and and they'll say, but you know what, I can't say that on the record. Oh, well, why are you talking to me? Right. You know, but uh, you, you I mean, if I counted the hours of the times that I've got things on the record or an or an unnamed source on the record, I mean, 99 percent of them have been off the record and never written. And it's always anger and frustration and a million stories about how people were let down and treated poorly and those sort of things and um, and were lied to about facilities and money and all that sort of stuff. So it, it gets pretty deep. Just most people can't go on the record for it. You also have had to pivot out of some stuff off of Vanderbilt into some other things. Obviously in 2020, that involves some really bizarre story writing and probably some unique stuff that you haven't delved into. So how was that? But also uh, what about the, the last couple of months on the Titans beat? How's that been for you? <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll hit these one at a time. Um, so last year, I spent about three plus months on the news beat because of COVID and all that. So I covered 1A stories for us at the Tennessee and on COVID and uh, the protests, the BLM protests and things like that. And, you know, found out that I did have a value um, beyond sports. And so that was that was stressful, but also fun. And I was you're pretty thankful when people get some people are getting laid off, but also people are getting furloughed and you can still find you know, sort of a value in a newsroom beyond just covering, you know, games or whatever. Uh, so that was, that was uh, pretty unique. Um, the Titans beat just came on because uh, our Titans writer, Eric Bacharach, uh, went to grad school, left the business in December. And so they threw me on it. And, you know, suddenly you're covering something that you watch is kind of a fan. I mean, I'm not a fan of any, anything except Titans a little bit that keeps my fandom intact. Otherwise, I just don't, I feel weird being a fan of anybody as a sports writer. But um, so you start to get a little more knowledge of a lot of the inner workings of the Titans when you have to cover them a little closer. And that that came in handy about, I'd say about two and a half weeks ago. So I had, so today you guys are doing this podcast. I just did my first post vasectomy run. So so I had, I had a vasectomy uh, two and a half <laughs> two and a half weeks ago and uh and you know eight miles of bouncing and stitches don't work well together <laughs> so so today was the test run if i had not been on the podcast you guys couldn't have even guessed why that would be but uh thankfully we're good we made it through okay i waited long enough to try a run but uh, i got it two and a half weeks ago and so i had to ask off for the day I actually covered the SEC tournament right after that, but well, I, I'll give you a couple stories here. One of them was, so I get the vasectomy and there's actually a little bit of complications involved that I won't go into, but please don't. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. TMI. But uh, it was uncomfortable for a while there and I had to cover the SEC tournament like the next day. So I go to the SEC tournament, Teresa Walker, friend of the show, right? Teresa Walker with the AP is sitting next to me at Bridgestone arena 
and Chris Harris, Chris Harris TV guy in town, and Joe Rexroad both know why I'm limping around. And so they start tweeting little funny hidden things about it, get at, get sparks and ice pack and these sort of things. Teresa isn't in on the joke. So then Teresa then tweets something like, yeah, he and I are suffering through the same things because she's got a back injury and she thinks I hurt my back. And I'm like, Teresa, I promise you, <laughs> we don't have the same issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> Once I told her, her face turned red and I, I, she may have kept the tweet up. I'm not sure. But uh, but so I get the vasectomy while I'm covering the Titans and I go in and my urologist who's local here in town, he's uh, he finds out what I do for a living. He's a big Titans fan, sports fan, big SEC fan. And we spend the consultation. We spend 90 percent of the time talking about sports. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. What what when do I show up? How, how does this work? That sort of thing. So then I, I get the vasectomy. I didn't take the uh, sedatives. I didn't take any of that. So I was wide awake through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. oh. Insane. oh. you are insane. Oh. You know, I got my wisdom teeth pulled out and I didn't use sedation. That was fine. I thought this would be too. So I had things to do that day. It was 90 bucks for the sedative. I was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so, and so I had kind of, you know, so the way any doctors will do you that way is they will keep you talking through the procedure. And so my guy was, my urologist was a Georgia grad and a Titans fan. So then as soon as he, you know, cuts me open or whatever, and he's starting to look what he needs to look for, and he's got all these sharp tools, he's like, let's talk about Isaiah Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm like, okay, sure. I mean, keep me talking, you know, because I'm hearing things grinding and... (laughs) and you see smoke go up from things that are cauterized and you can hear snipping and other things i said you know what yeah let's talk let's talk let's talk sports so i start talking through it we're talking about our favorite sec stadiums and all this sort of stuff and you know the way that these guys are trained you know is that they just want to keep you talking to keep your mind off of it so they're looking down at what they're doing and they'll just "Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah okay and just keep conversation going but this guy was intent into the conversation so I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, I thought he could replace Conklin from what Conklin was a couple of years ago. They'd have a left tackle, they'd have a right tackle. And then, you know, he's like, yeah, and what did we get for him? And he stops and he kind of looks back at me and kind of puts his, you know, his instruments down. He's like, what did we get? We got a seventh round, like we traded seventh round picks, you know, and this guy is engaged in the conversation, you know, and, and you know, he's like, and, you know, we're, we're probably going to settle for Bud Dupree on the other side. And it's th- this guy. I was afraid he was more engaged in our conversation than what he was doing. Thankfully it all went fine, but, uh, but I, I was happy by the fact that I had so much Titans knowledge after covering him for three months, that it wasn't just a head nod that I could talk him through the whole draft and free agency and all that and kept the conversation going. At one point, a second urologist had to come into the room for something. And I was like, dude, you got to, you got to get out here. Like we're talking about who they're going to draft in the first round. You know, it kind of broke the rhythm up, but uh, (laughs) thankfully I was on the Titans beat long enough to have Isaiah Wilson, uh, Isaiah Wilson knowledge that I could talk to my urologist for the whole hour through a, through a vasectomy. It helped out. Adam, um, we have not ever had an interview on the show like this. I I, I, I don't, I don't think anything can follow that. Nope. Uh, So best of luck (laughs) with, with your next run and whatever else you're going to do in your career. <laughs> no, no more vasectomies, no more Isaiah Wilson. You can insert the joke there if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for your time. We do appreciate it. I don't mean to cut you short here, but we'll, 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 we'll talk. We'll talk soon, my man. Always we'll try that out. Thanks guys. Good to be on. That was Adam Sparks of the Tennessean, and I've always enjoyed talking to him, Steve, like for the decade or whatever that I've known the man, uh, a long time working I, covering the middle I, Tennessee. I feel beach. like I know things about yes. Adam that I never knew before. I, that that might be the best conversation I've ever had with Adam Sparks, and we've spent a lot of time at uh, Hawkins Field you know, press box jabbering about all kinds of Vandy stuff, and uh, ne- never, never... Never used the word cauterized before. That's for, <laughs> that's for sure. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. It'll be interesting to see who um, follows Adam on the Vandy beat. Adam had knowledge of the area and certainly SEC football and whatever else. 
from proximity, having covered MTSU for 10 years before, before moving up to the Vandy beat, SEC beats can be hard to drop somebody into. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that, if the person they bring in has kind of SEC knowledge or has, yeah. uh, you know, has area knowledge. Adam had both and it was, it served him really well in his time on, on the Vandy beat. And frankly, I, I kind of gave him a chance to take some credit for th- this big. Pl- I mean, let's be honest. I don't think that that $300 million announcement on Monday of this week takes place without his reporting from alumni that sort of created a groundswell of public opinion pushing on Vanderbilt saying, this isn't good enough. We want more. And I tried to give him a chance to like take some credit there. And of course, the humble man that he is d- didn't didn't really take it. And uh, but I don't think I don't think it can be understated or overstated, I guess, that 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 sort of period of time where you had all these alumni coming out very vocally against the school and against their commitment to the athletes. That to me was a big part of changing what Vanderbilt has is now doing as far as investing in athletics. So um, the, the most interesting thing Adam said was I hear everybody talking about what a, what a monumental kind of thing this is for, for Vanderbilt. I found it fascinating that he said that it looks like Vanderbilt has taken it from 10th on its priorities to sixth on its priorities, <laughs> which, which I think is the, I think is absolutely the right perspective here, which is still good for Vanderbilt fans. I mean, it's still very good for Vanderbilt fans, but Vanderbilt is not Vanderbilt is not trying to win an sec title with this. Right. I mean, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to catch up to the middle of the sec, maybe with this sort of announcement. I will be I will be really really interested to see kind of they they made this big announcement without kind of the the renderings and plans in place to do it. It's just like hey okay get off our backs we're gonna spend some money. That's that that to me that's what the the, the entire announcement felt like was was look you've bitched long enough Vanderbilt fans. Yeah. We're we're gonna we're gonna get this in gear. Well, we do know that Malcolm Turner had a like an eight hundred million dollar plan and had maybe started working on some of those plans like architecturally. So I bet you there are some renderings somewhere uh, in the works back there behind the closed doors. But hopefully we get to see those soon. And uh, unfortunately, Adam Sparks will not be on the beat to cover that. But he's been great for Vanderbilt fans and for tennis Nashvilleians to to follow what's going on over there on West End for the last decade. He's been great, and uh, we do appreciate his time. All right. On to ratings and recommendations. Let's do ratings first, Steve, uh, as it's been missing from our show for a couple of couple of weeks, couple of months now. It's back. Uh, glad to have it back and and better than ever. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So five NCAA tournament games, of course, were the five most watched television shows, sports television shows in Nashville over the last week. Number one, LSU Michigan with an 8.5. Uh, that, of course, was a 1-8 matchup, I believe. The uh, number two, UCLA Alabama which was a Sweet 16 matchup. Obviously, Bama with a tie here, 8.1 rating there. Oregon State, Loyola, Chicago, two huge brands in the college basketball world, number three. <laughs> at don't, seven, don't, don't sleep on Sister Jean. At 7.6. Florida State, Michigan, which would have been a Sweet 16 matchup as well, was a 7.5. And Oral Roberts, Arkansas, with a little SEC tie there as a 7.0. Each number, of course, was is about 11,000 homes in Nashville, uh, TV homes in Nashville, and this, of course, courtesy of Mark Binda of News Channel 5. So so three different SEC uh, schools in the top five. I guess yep. that's not surprising. The LSU-Michigan game, uh, good game. Good. Yeah. Uh, it was good. Should have gone the other way. <laughs> Should have gone. Should have gone the other way. Would have made. Uh, Would have made my FanDuel account much happier if it had. Uh, I won a lot of money on Michigan <laughs> against Florida State. The next. The next round. The next round. The which, uh, which was number four on the list. Mich- uh, Michigan on here twice. I mean, yeah, Michigan. And, and again, I, the, the Tennessee game against Oregon State pulled a four point six. So there you go. I mean, does that surprise you? I mean, Tennessee basketball and, and the lack of enthusiasm kind of down the stretch for them. I mean, everybody knew this team was going to crap out at some point. It just happened to be the first round. Well, I think first round and the fact that they were down early and the fact that it was 3.30 on a Friday. I, I think yeah. all that sort of combined for it to maybe be less watched. But I was a little surprised that not more people watched t- the Tennessee Volunteer Basketball Program. I mean, Alabama was number two on this list, so that makes sense. And, and Alabama, as we've talked to Mark Binda before, Alabama is is largely sort of the new Tennessee in middle Tennessee as far as ratings go, uh, in particular football. So 
the, uh, the cutoff on this list is Sunday. Yes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens next week. I want to see what these Monday Tuesday games do yeah. in terms of in, ter- in terms of ratings. I'll, I'll be I'll be interested to see what it does. No, we've we've never had elite eight basketball games on Monday Tuesday. They've always been Saturday Sunday. So we'll see what those ratings look like. Good to have ratings back on the show. I really enjoyed that part. Hope you guys do as well. All right, recommendations on the show. I'm going to go shamelessly here and and selfishly here because I don't normally do it. Uh, it's only happened a couple of times, uh, but I will promote the new podcast on the network, Club and Country. If you are a Nashville SC fan, there's good shows out there, but I think this one's going to be the best, and that is Wes Bowling, the radio commentator for Nashville SC, and has been around soccer in this country or in this market for a while. And Tim Sullivan, who runs the club and country website, clubcountryusa.com. He's been covering this team longer than almost anybody else in the market, if not the longest, I think. Uh, and I think those two guys are going to do a fantastic job. Episodes will come out every Tuesday morning. So subscribe now, search wherever podcasts are found, club and country. You can find it on 440sports.com as well. So shamelessly and selfishly promoting and recommending our new soccer podcast. We are in, Steve. We are in. All in. Although that's not hashtag all in. It's everyone in. Everyone in. Everyone in. Uh, hashtag everyone in. I'm really excited uh, for this. And, and and shout out to particularly to Tim Sullivan, who I think is, re- is really good at what he does. And uh, if you're not following Club Country USA, his site, uh, you should, uh, because it's just really, really well done. So, yep. bravo. Can't wait yep. to listen. Every Tuesday, Club and Country. Rate, review, subscribe, share the show. Just one person. What do you got for us, Steve? In 180 degrees, the opposite <laughs> direction. So one of my favorite writers uh, out there is a guy named Derek Thompson, who writes for The Atlantic. He's done a couple, he's done a couple of really good podcasts uh, as well. But he has a piece in The Atlantic that I would highly recommend everyone read. And it's called The Pandemic's Wrongest Man. <laughs> The deck on it is, in a crowded field of wrongness, one person stands out. That person is not Nashville sports fans, who you might think it is. <laughs> it's a guy named Alex Berenson. Berenson is a former New York Times writer. Uh, they always seem to put that in his bio uh, as if it gives imprimatur to to the crap he has been, uh, <laughs> he has been uh, spewing here for the last year. But I mean, there's a really great piece at the end of this that Thompson writes, look, these pieces are inherently problematic because you have to repeat this person's lies in order to debunk them. And so he's like, that's why he says, I'm going into as much depth and detail as possible to explain exactly why he is wrong, including there's some great tidbits in there. Like Berenson takes this one study out of context and Thompson goes and calls the researchers of the study and says, Hey, your study is being used this way. Is this what this means? And they say, no, and here's exactly what the data says. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of that. It, it is, it is one of the, uh, it's one of the best versions of these kind of debunking pieces, which are very tough to do. Is that, uh, is that like the, the non-sports fan version of like debunking play calling in football, like, like throwing it on third and one around the goal line? Like everyone and their mother thinks it's obviously not the right call, but like really what happened in in the practice room all week long was that they practiced to throw the ball in third and one around the goal line. <laughs> right. Isn't that the same kind of thing? A little bit. Minus the, the death the, and destruction. Well, I was going to say, but he, he goes through and he takes, he takes some of, uh, some of Berenson's biggest claims. I mean, it's just stupid stuff about how like deaths rise after the advent of vaccines in a particular country all of the stuff about the about the mRNA vaccines, which are, are the Pfizer and Moderna, the, the two shot versions that we have here in uh, in this country, and and just yeah. kind of how wrong he is about how these affect our immune system and how they interact with our immune system. It's a great piece. Everyone, and particularly since we're all getting vaccinated right now. And by the way, everyone, you should be getting vaccinated right now. <laughs> People are standing by to give you your vaccination. Go get vaccinated. I think Tennessee opened up to everybody 16 and over here this week. So, well, I, so, uh, I, I have one of those, uh, M- MRNA vaccines in my body. <laughs> so I, I do, I do too. I got my second, I got my second shot at music city center this week. I'm, I, I felt, I felt like I had an S on my chest as I walked out of that place. It nice. was just, 
it was fantastic. But, but anyway, awesome. go go read this go read this piece. It is the thing that you should understand okay. about vaccines and COVID right now, and, and and you know distribute out to the wingnut members of your family that are <laughs> posting posting feverishly on Facebook about how this is all yep, yep, a, yep. a plot by Bill Gates to get microchips into our head. The pandemic's wrongest man at the Atlantic written by Derek Thompson. Go to go check that out uh, as well. Uh, Steve, also all of our wonderful guests appear and this show appears because of our wonderful sponsors, Jaspers. I was just there on Thursday, actually, just a, just at Jaspers had a couple appetizers, brought, brought, brought a flatbread home for the wife. She loved it. She said, thank you. People, your wife will like you more when you go to Jaspers. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Go to Jaspers. That is a a bold claim. (laughs) I mean, I guess it depends on how much you drink and what time you go, but like, yeah, your wife will like timings, everything. Your wife will like you more if you go to Jaspers. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Go to Jaspers. Great food, great parking, great place to watch the game. Great happy hour for Preds games. All that good stuff. You guys know the drill now uh, by far. So go to Jaspers and check it out. Special thanks to Adam Sparks. That was a fantastic conversation. Introspective, thoughtful, uh, analytical, lots illuminating. of illuminating, <laughs> cauterizing. It's just very, very fun conversation with Adam. I always love talking to him. And I, I think Tennesseans and Nashvilleans and Vandy fans are worse off because he is not on that beat anymore. So had to talk with him today. We do appreciate it. Steve, where can people follow you? They can find me on Twitter at scavendish my name is braden gall you can follow me at braden gall at 440 sports of course on both twitter and facebook at 440 media on instagram we do appreciate all of your support please share the show thank you so much for steve cavendish my name is braden gall this has been lamestream sports on the 440 sports network